0: The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com.
1: We are your Election Election. Connection. We are your Election Election. Connection. We are your Election Election
0: Connection. Welcome, everyone, to Election Connection and to a little piece of the democracy pie that we call Forward Radio, where listener participation, is encouraged and supported. Just go to forwardradio.org and click on the Participate tab to express your thoughts. While you're at it, you may also consider clicking on Donate to keep Grassroots Community Radio vital and vocal. I am your host, Ruth Newman. Now, today's program is packed full of information you need to hear on the two constitutional amendments that will be appearing on the ballot for this upcoming election. These talks took place at the Louisville League of Women Voters Democracy in Action meeting that was held October 17th at Langhouse in Louisville. So let's listen in as D. Pregliasco opens the meeting.
2: I'm Deepa Regliasco, president of the Louisville League. We welcome you here. As you know, we register voters, but we also do something that I think is just as important, which is educate voters. And tonight we're gonna educate voters about Amendment 1, and we have a special speaker for that, and we're gonna educate you all about Amendment 2. But what we did, there are seven independent mayoral candidates, and so we invited them to all come to speak. Uh, We have Martina Kaneki, and we have John Mace and I Thacker. As you know, we don't support candidates and we don't support parties, but we do support issues, and that's why we're having what we're having tonight. Ms. Martina Kaneki,
3: Hello, everyone. First of all, I want to thank the League of Women Voters for letting uh, the independents have a voice. That's a problem that independents suffer uh, in this electoral process. Uh, until about seven months ago I was a lifelong Democrat and when I saw the lay of the land in terms of candidates and how in my view it represented more of the same changed my registration from uh, Democrat to independent so that we could put issues on the table that I knew would not be put on the table with the current front-running candidates my name is Martina nichols Kunicky. I am on the ballot And I am president of an organization that some of you may have heard of, Neighborhood Planning and Preservation. We have been in support of neighborhoods all over Metro Louisville since 2003, I think is when Jim Seacrest and a bunch of folks from this neighborhood and and others started. We advocate on behalf of neighborhoods for quality of life issues, so that's gonna include land use, preservation, environmental justice, governmental transparency, we cover the gamut. We were the group that pulled together the group that beat the methane plants in West Louisville. We attempted to landmark the water company. We usually lose, (laughs) but sometimes we win. I think I'm a better candidate than my counterparts because I don't have to hire anyone to tell me how to talk to the community. I don't have to hire anyone to tell me how to relate to the African American community. I don't have to hire anyone to talk about police abuse issues and the needs for police reform because I've been working with the community for well over 20 years in these areas. If we want things to change, and I believe all of us do, we have to change who we vote for. For that reason, I changed my party, and that was a painful thing to do. But when your party has begun to drift astray of its values, it's time to say, these are our values, and there are going to be people that are going to be speaking to those values.
2: John Mace, you're next.
3: So when we were in school,
4: they taught us about the checks and balances and the three branches of government which are legislative, judicial, and executive. But what they don't either emphasize or don't talk about as much is that there is a fourth branch of government, and that's us. The people are the last resort to keep everything balanced and make sure that those that are elected are doing their job, and if not, then it's our responsibility to be those people that run for office. My campaign is about strengthening individual rights so that when we form that collective then we're able to create change with that with those powers and I believe the best way to get those are through unionization education political reform and emphasize a healthy gun culture so right now I, I work at UPS at the at Worldport, and we're part of the Teamsters Union And then with education, I believe in, that we need to uh, encourage school choice because the issue with a lot of public schools is the class sizes. And by having more school choice, we can have choices that either meets their needs or at least helps the public school system be able to uh, better use what they're doing.
2: All right, Mr. Thacker?
5: Well, hello and welcome everyone. (laughs) And I would like to express My great appreciation to the League of Women Voters for inviting me to this forum, and my name is Isaac Marion Thacker the Fourth, and that's the way it's on the ballot, right up at the top, below the two major party candidates, but most people know me as Ike, and I've been on the boards of the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist Political Repression and the Fellowship of Reconciliation's local chapter since about 2009, and have been involved in virtually every progressive activist campaign since about 2002, and I have taught at four different institutions of higher learning, I guess Georgia State University, Eastern, uh, the Kentucky College of Business, and Spalding in three different fields. So that's kind of a summary of my perhaps politically irrelevant life. Um, There have been many agendas pursued in our treasured city, our shared commonwealth of Kentucky, our sea, shining sea beautiful but endangered nation, and our world since about 1981, when a large part of the ruling class in this country decided that government was more problem than solution. You know those agendas, the business agenda, the lily white agenda, the business agenda, the lily white agenda. You get the picture. I don't know about you, but I think it's about darn time that we pursue and achieve the people's agenda. And I mean those, though, that both in terms of those words usual meaning and to refer to a specific document called the people's agenda that was come up with in 2002 and has been modified and, and advocated for ever since. That document forms the majority of my platform, and you can find it in a tab on my campaign webpage, which is simply www.ikeformayor.com. Let's now explore the meanings, though, of the people's agenda. I believe that capitalism must be overcome, partly because it is a giving up, a giving up on what Kevin Pinker might call the better angels of human nature, Capitalism set up a caricature of of humanity, said that only greed, laziness, and and self-interest will be valued. And it created a very unequal system through the years in which 650 to 700 billionaires in this country have $4.7 trillion in wealth, almost exactly one-fifth of the entire GDP. I say, let's go for equality.
2: All right, now I'll introduce our uh, speaker, who is John Schaff. Just a little bit about uh, John. He grew up in St. Matthews and started working for the General Assembly in the 70s, the first era of legislative independence, which I think is interesting. Then he went to Florida for a while, came back, ran a weekly newspaper, attended law school, and that's when I first, uh, because he practiced law here, that's when we first sort of knew each other, but rediscovered him last week. He returned to the Legislative Research Commission in the late 80s, worked on the Education Reform Act, dear to the hearts of all League members, uh, and was named Legislative Research Commission's General Counsel. And in 2004, he went to the Legislative Ethics Commission, where he served as counsel and retired as Executive Director in 2019.
6: As D set up, worked with the General Assembly for quite a few years more or less consistently since 1974 when I was a legislative intern. I wrote an article last fall about this amendment because they adopted it in the General Assembly. I retired about three years ago, so I don't mind talking about the General Assembly now in a a way that might be a little more candid than when I was working with it. But they adopted this amendment in the 2021 session of the General Assembly. Uh, And of course, Constitutional amendments can only appear on the ballot uh, in a year in which the members of the General Assembly are elected, which is every even-numbered year. So it's been out there for a while, and when I looked at it, I have to say I was surprised by the uh, chutzpah that they showed by writing this thing and uh, putting it on the ballot. And then, of course, this year uh, they put Amendment Number 2 on there, and I think their hope misguided uh, I believe, is that the amendments will carry each other uh, across the finish line. Number two is much more simple, uh, but combined with number one, I would characterize both of them as a, a serious power grab, uh, legislative overreach uh, in, in, of the worst cat. With number two, they're attempting to uh, exclude the judicial branch, all the courts of the Commonwealth, from having anything to say about any law that they might pass that affects abortion and who knows how far they could carry that term. But uh, it would completely exclude uh, the circuit courts, the courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court from having anything to say about what the legislature does. And as I'll explain with number one, it's an attack on the executive branch. And we put the legislature in the position of managing uh, the executive branch, basically. So they will tell you, as they did last year, they're not saying much about it now, but uh, they'll say that it's about the mask mandate and about the closure of schools uh, that occurred in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic. But... Uh, as with a lot of things, and certainly a lot of things around the General Assembly, it's actually about the money. And it's about the power, and the power is used to create more money. And we're talking about not just personal money in terms of salaries of legislators, but political money, campaign money uh, that, that they can raise, often in exchange for their sympathy toward uh, regulated businesses. Uh, and organizations. So, let me just talk about what amendment number one would actually do. Uh, and I might intersperse an editorial comment here and there. What goes into the Constitution under amendment one? Well, uh, it places new language in the Constitution that would require the General Assembly to adjourn its session by December 31st of each year. What comes out when that goes in are the two dates by which the General Assembly must adjourn right now. So right now they convene on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of January. And in odd-numbered years they have to adjourn that session by March 30th. And in even-numbered years they have to leave Frankfurt by April 15th. And within that they have 30 days in odd years and 60 days in even years. This new amendment would allow them to use those 30 days in odd years all year long and only having to adjourn by December 31st. So they could convene in January for a week or two and they could introduce legislation and then that legislation would carry over to the next time they get together, which might be in March, might be in June, might be a week every other month for the whole year. total of 30 days. Uh, In the even-numbered years, of course, they'd have twice as much time to operate and they could meet, but I guarantee you that they will meet all year long. They won't adjourn because they're going to see this as a message from the public that the public wants a year-round legislature. And I don't agree with that and uh, never have. And I say that as somebody who drafted the amendment in 2000 for the House leadership that allowed them to come into session in odd-numbered years for 30 days. Uh, they have an annual session. Uh, I thought that was a good idea. I still do. They were having a lot of special sessions. There was a lot of chaos around these sessions that were called by governors to address a specific issue and often they were called without any kind of agreement with what was going to happen so I think it's good the way it is obviously. Now under this new language when they come into session in January By a majority vote, that's all they need is uh, one more than 50 in the House and one more than 19 in the Senate, uh, they would set their adjournment date. And I will guarantee you again that they will set December 31st as their adjournment date. And if they go through the year and then uh, a bunch of legislators say, oh, we don't need to meet that long, we don't want to meet that long, Uh, let's have an earlier adjournment, well, then they're going to need three-fifths of, uh, of each chamber in order to set a new adjournment date. So, just a majority to set the date, three-fifths to uh, overturn that and meet and uh, adjourn earlier. It repeals the current constitutional language that says that bills take effect as law 90 days after the adjournment of the session in which it was passed. Now, they're doing that so that uh, they can meet all your law because the new language will provide that the bill becomes law either on July 1st or 90 days after signing by the governor or passage over the governor's veto, whichever occurs later. So, of course, that anticipates that they're going to be meeting in September, October, whatever, and that's a new effective date for legislation unbeknownst to most people, but part of the repeal of these various sections catches the constitutional language which prohibits legislators from raising their own salary. Okay, so now under our Constitution, it's been in effect since 1891, legislators cannot vote themselves a pay raise. They can raise the salaries of members of the General Assembly, but that can't take effect until later, the next year or during the next term of legislators, so they can't vote themselves directly a pay raise. Now, the provision that is, I think, most discussed is really not uh, as big a deal, but it is a big deal. It allows the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, two individuals, to convene a special session of the General Assembly, a power that's currently reserved only to the Governor, of course. And when the governor calls a special session now, the governor has to specify what can be considered during that special session. Under this new provision, if they were able to get it adopted, the two leaders could convene the session, and there'd be no limit on what they could do during that session. They could convene it for any reason and consider any legislation. It's limited to 12 days a year if they convene a session like that, but the 12 days does not have to be consecutive. The 12 days can be spread over the rest of the year. They could meet for two days, three days. And lately, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but they figured out that they could pass bills in three days now, which I think is unconstitutional. And most of that's been applied to bills that they've got agreement on, like flood relief for Eastern Kentucky, and, and it, it won't be challenged. But If they try something controversial in three days uh, by reading the same language in each chamber at the same time and then saying, okay, we're going to pass one bill, uh, I think that'll be struck down because the Constitution requires that the bill be read three days in each chamber. Now, I will say there is some opposition to this. In fact, it's not well organized. Uh, I think the governor's campaign manager has Started a political action committee to raise money to oppose this. I don't know how much impact that'll have, but this past weekend in the Frankfurt newspaper, the State Journal, there was an op ed by Senator Adrian Southworth. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Senator Southworth, but uh, she is not a person with whom I agree very often. But she did say that she opposed this amendment. In the General Assembly, and she's opposing it now. And she says the key reason I voted no, and I'll vote again, I'll vote no again in November, is I do not support power grabs. She said only five states currently allow leaders of the legislature to call their own sessions, and uh, she said the other 32 states that allow legislators to convene a special session uh, require at least two thirds, or sometimes three fourths of the members to agree before convening such a session. And she said Maine is particularly interesting. It requires a certain percentage of each party in each chamber before they can convene their own session. So, uh, again, Kentucky would be in a slim minority of that. Now, well, so what's the future if this amendment is adopted? and? In the words of the great philosopher Yogi Berra, who was also a catcher for the New York Yankees, he said, the future ain't what it used to be. Okay. (laughs) So, if this passes, the future is really different, okay? As I said, members of the General Assembly will interpret this as public approval of a year-round General Assembly. And they'll convene in January and they won't adjourn until New Year's Eve. The part of the problem with that is year-round sessions uh, are going to make it much more difficult for the public to participate in the legislative issues. Citizens who are interested in advocating for or against a particular bill or an issue are going to have difficulty uh, dealing with this adjusted calendar. They're going to come into session, uh, they're going to go out of session, They're going to take up bills, but they won't vote on them. If there's a lot of people there, they'll say, well, we may look at this in March when we come back. Oh, they may not, you know, but I'll use as an example when the teachers converged on Frankfurt a few years ago because the legislature was, well, they're going to undermine significantly the teachers' retirement system. So the teachers converged on Frankfurt, put a lot of pressure on the General Assembly, and the General Assembly backed down at that time. You won't be able to do that anymore. This will empower the paid lobbyists, who are already quite influential in Frankfurt. I regulated paid lobbyists for 15 years at the Ethics Commission, and lobbying has become a major industry in Kentucky. We've now exceeded $20 million. It's probably $25 million by now. spent paying lobbyists to be in Frankfurt all the time. And so people, businesses and organizations that can afford to have lobbyists in Frankfurt all year long are going to have even more of an advantage over citizens who are interested in a particular issue. It's also going to be more difficult to be a legislator. Uh, It's going to discourage people from running. If you have a full-time job, Uh, Right now, we have teachers in the General Assembly, we have uh, nurses, you know, farmers. If you're a teacher, a nurse, a farmer, and you've got obligations year-round, you might be able to arrange your schedule so that you can be in Frankfurt for a couple of months, two or three months in January, February, March, um, and then you're at work the rest of the year. Uh, Under this new scheme, you're really not gonna know Probably when you're going to be in session when you're going to be called to frankfurt because I don't think they're going to set up a Year-round schedule in January. They're not going to say okay. We're going to meet on these dates They're going to reserve that to the leadership to bring the legislators back in when they want to bring them back in So my prediction in that regard is that you'll have more people in the General Assembly who are business owners who can adjust their schedule to meet this new reality or more likely you'll have people who work for those business owners and businesses who like the idea of having one of their employees serve in the General Assembly. That might be good, uh, particularly if you're a regulated business which many are uh, or you have interest in legislation. It uh, is helpful to have one of your staff people serving in the General Assembly. The other thing might be uh, lawyers who work with big law firms. Again, big law firms, they like to run people for judgeships. They'll like even better having people serving in the legislature and they'll arrange that individual schedule to fit that dynamic because they want to have their lawyers serving where the laws are written. Those kind of people will have more flexibility. They'll have the uh, backing of their employers, and they'll be in the General Assembly in greater numbers. Now, there will be less transparency in the legislative process. They'll discuss bills, as I said earlier, and then they'll leave town without voting, you know, maybe indefinitely. They can return when there's less public scrutiny, when there's less media scrutiny. You know, we have fewer journalists in frankfurt now than we've ever had before when i first worked over there i mean the courier journal the lexington paper the ashland paper uh the owensboro paper the paducah paper they all had reporters in frankfurt tv stations same way even some radio stations had reporters at least covering the general assembly now you know there is a handful of people who do that and it's very difficult to cover frankfurt or the General Assembly with with one person. And they will defer voting on controversial issues until after their primary elections in May or after their general elections in November. Uh, And we've seen that historically because when I was working there, they moved the filing deadline back. The filing deadline used to be like March or April before the primary in May. Well, now it's in January, and that's because they want to have an idea of who their opponents are going to be before they start talking about controversial issues. So they they see their opponents by about January 20th, primary opponents, general election opponents, and they can design their legislating activity around how stout they think their opposition is. Uh, and sometimes they don't have any opponents, and they can do, you know, whatever they want without much oversight.
0: And you are listening to a presentation on Amendment 1 appearing on the November ballot given by John Shaw, who served as general counsel to the Kentucky Legislative Research Commission and also was executive director of the Legislative Ethics Commission. This will be followed by a talk on Amendment 2. And this uh, was held on October 17th in front of the League of Women Voters.
6: Now, passage of this amendment is a recipe for corruption and scandal, okay? Just like Bob Trot. A couple of years ago, I co authored a book on the hidden history of political scandal in Kentucky. And I had one chapter on Bob Trot, which some of you may remember. And it was a case of legislators and lobbyists getting too friendly with each other and it was a result of about 90 years of dominance of state government by the governor, okay? So, for many years legislators didn't have much to say about how state government operated because of our 1891 Constitution, uh, which vested most all of the power in the governor's office because legislators were from rural areas and they couldn't get to Frankfurt very often, so they, they only allowed them to meet every other year for a very abbreviated period of time. Uh, the governor ran everything. And so, starting in the 70s, when I first started working there, legislators began to look for ways to take on more of the authority of state government because they were running for office They were spending a lot of time in Frankfurt. They wanted to have more to say about how government operated. And so uh, they put some amendments on the ballot, for example, that uncoupled their legislative elections from the election of governors. That used to take place in odd-numbered years for all of them. And so as a consequence of that, many legislators were political allies of the governor. They would run on the same ticket with the person of the party they were in, and and if they got elected, it was usually because their candidate for governor got elected. And so when they got to the General Assembly, they would rubber stamp whatever the governor wanted. And it was that way until the so-called Kenton Amendment, which was pushed by the Speaker of the House at the time, uh, Bill Kenton of Lexington, uncoupled that uh, that election, and so they were elected independently, uh, also provided for an organizational session in odd-numbered years, which was important back at the time, because they could get elected in November, then they could meet in January and appoint all their committees and elect their leadership and have a whole year to study issues before they came into session. Okay, so now they got regular sessions. But the, the reality of it is they will try to micromanage state government and they will veto administrative actions, particularly administrative regulations, which is how the executive branch implements the laws passed by the General Assembly. And ever since I've been there, legislators have not liked administrative regulations because they are laws written by people who are not elected and people who don't answer to the legislators really. so. They've always disliked that. In fact, in 1990, they put an amendment on the ballot that would have given them the authority to override administrative regulations during the interim between sessions. And that was in response to a Supreme Court case that said, Kentucky has very strict separation of powers. Legislators can't do stuff that is under the responsibility of the executive branch. Uh, So in response to that, they tried to amend the Constitution then to give themselves power over regulations. uh, It failed 69 to 31 percent. People didn't like that idea of legislators being responsible for all the law. Uh, Any budget-related action by the governor, which means just about any action the governor takes in implementing the state budget, is going to be subject to legislative veto as soon as they get back into session. They're going to be able to override some program that the governor is trying to implement, some spending that the governor wants to do in some particular area, Uh, a contract that the governor has uh, let for some responsibility, When you know, building a road, running a prison, you know, whatever they do with contracts, running hospitals, more and more stuff is contracted out now, it's privatized anyway, So they're going to be able to come in and change anything they don't like, uh, essentially. Right now, regs are only subject to review. They can't be overridden until the legislature comes back into session. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Okay, legislative campaigns are funded through the political parties of the legislators, largely. Uh, They collect a fair amount of money on their own, but it's the legislative leadership uh, that's collecting the money, uh, that, that funds these campaigns. So, uh, a lot of the money comes from regulated businesses and organizations, businesses that want state contracts, businesses that have state contracts that want to keep them. These people are the funders of the legislative races, and funders of the governor's race, too. Uh, but they're the ones who participate in the funding because they participate in the governing of the commonwealth. Uh, so, if you've got legislators who can come in and override a regulation that some regulated business objects to, you've got a, a source of money, political money, from that business, uh, from their whole industry, uh, <coughs> that is even more objectionable than the current system. You know, if they're in session all year, they'll be able to react more quickly to contracts and regulations that their funders don't like. So, I will wrap it up by telling you, I'll put in a plug, Kentucky has one of the best, uh, most comprehensive legislative ethics laws in the country. It was created in the wake of the Bob Trot scandal back in the 90s. Uh, It created the Legislative Ethics Commission, which is a rarity among states, It's an independent commission that doesn't include any legislators on it. Most states deal with legislative ethics problems by referring them to committees of legislators who then have to sit in judgment of their colleagues. Well, in Kentucky, you've got a commission, nine-member commission. Now, they're appointed four by the Speaker, four by the President of the Senate, uh, but you have to have bipartisan representation on there and one appointed as a joint appointment of the two the two individuals. So, there are often retired judges, uh, there are some retired legislators, and then there are just some citizens on there who are interested in, in doing that kind of work. So, uh, it's an independent commission. And in the ethics law, we have some prohibitions that, like political action committees, cannot give campaign contributions to legislators or legislative candidates during a session of the General <coughs> Assembly. Uh, so that's separate. Most of these PACs are connected to businesses and organizations that employ lobbyists. So they have legislative interests. So you disconnect the campaign contribution while the legislators are considering legislation. And once they adjourn, you know they can take PAC money again. But they also, 365 days a year, they cannot take a contribution from a lobbyist. And that's a big deal because it separates the lobbyist. The person who deals with them directly on legislation cannot give them a campaign contribution. So uh, that's a big deal. We're a rarity among states to have that kind of prohibition. A few years ago, it was challenged in court by one of the legislators who said that he ought to be able to take campaign contributions from lobbyists, and it was a violation of his First Amendment rights that he couldn't take campaign contributions from them and that he couldn't take food and beverages from them either. You can't have a lobbyist buying an individual legislator a meal. They well, can invite a whole group, like a bipartisan group, but you can't have a lobbyist legislator one-on-one hospitality. And so he asserted that that violated his First Amendment rights, free speech, and association with lobbyists. Of course, which is ridiculous on its face, but lo and behold, he won in the U.S. District Court in Northern Kentucky. And so we had to appeal that to the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit unanimously upheld our law and overruled the District Court. Uh, And we had a panel of one Trump appointee, one Bush appointee, and one Clinton appointee on that panel, and they unanimously uh, overruled the district court striking down uh, the key parts of the ethics law. So it's good law. So I will quit there. If you have any questions about it, I mean I think it's pretty clear what I think.
1: Do yeah,
6: have questions, though? Kathy
1: Hinko. Okay. I was just wondering if they say that. Let's say they say the session goes till December 31st. Does that mean they don't have to ever pass a budget instead of in March or April they can go to December 31st?
6: Probably not. I think it's still provided in the Constitution that the fiscal year for state government starts on July 1st. So I think they would pass a budget. And another thing is, uh, if you pass any budget-related items in an odd year, you need a three-fifths majority in each chamber to pass it. So it gets a lot more difficult to pass a budget in an odd year. So I think they'll continue to have a two-year budget that takes effect on July 1st of the even-numbered year.
1: And I I just want to say for those who remember Gay Wood Goldberg who tried to uh, pass marijuana legislation said after Bob Trot, if I had only known how cheap you could buy Kentucky legislators who would have had legalized marijuana. Yeah,
6: well, that was in the infancy of, you know, lobbyist appreciation for legislators. And so they really hadn't driven the price up yet, you know. Wasn't
2: it like less than
6: $5,000? Well, there were there were legislators convicted of taking as little as $500. Yeah. You know, but, but it was kind of tricky, but the prosecutors did a good job of proving that they were taking it in exchange for some treatment that they had given the donor.
2: Somebody else up here
4: had a question. So why not, because the limitations of the days, because that was set up so long ago when it wasn't the same as it is now, why not, instead of being upset about the, how they separate the days,
6: why not increase that amount to make it more of a full-time job? Well. I mean, that's certainly an option that they have, but I think what they're trying to do with this amendment is say, hey, we're not going to expand our session. You know, we're not, we're not making it uh, six months long. You know, we're not full-time legislators. But what undermines that argument is they're taking out the adjournment dates. And so, you know, at least right now, they're under some pressure to act one way or the other by March 30th, or by April 15th, because then they have to leave town and they can't come back. Under this scheme, they could kick the can down the road next year, you know, maybe. You know, so I think they want to say to people, we're not meeting any more than we do now, you know? Because I think they know people don't want a year-round legislature. Mm -hmm. So if they keep it 60 days and 30 days, that's what they're selling.
1: Do we know that lobbyists aren't uh, working their way around giving money going through the
6: back door? There are a million ways for everybody to get a million dollars into a million campaigns. Unfortunately, the landscape of campaign finance in this country is a burned out desert now, thanks to the efforts of some of our local officials you know, who operate in Washington. And have operated up there for 40 years to dismantle campaign finance. So now you can give any amount of money to anything you want. And in a lot of cases, it's not reportable. If you give to one of these 501c4 nonprofits, a so called educational organization, they don't have to report their donors. And they spend big money on like they're spending money on judicial campaigns, uh, they're probably spending money on these mayoral campaigns, and you don't know who's behind them. So yeah, there are many ways that, well, lobbyists can still give to the political parties, uh, they just can't give directly to legislative candidates because that's who they talk to directly, a lot of them. The ones who are more influential, of course, they could talk to the party leadership and get things done. They don't have to go around and talk to all the legislators. Uh, I'm curious about the impact of Amendment One on joint interim committees. Would there no longer be interim committees if you kept your session open until December 31st? I've, I've seen some actual movement in those joint committees that we don't see uh, in March. You know, uh, in terms of bipartisan yeah. work. Yeah. And that was one of the things that they started back in the 70s to really strengthen the legislative process to have these interim committees, House and Senate members, both parties, meeting together once a month. And they could, you're right, they could actually agree on some things and move some issues forward, partly because they weren't operating under the heat of a legislative session, but they would get legislation shaped up so that when the session did come around, uh, there was widespread agreement on what they were going to do with these particular bills that had gone through that process. So, But you raise another good point there, and that is, what will happen, I believe, is you will replace interim joint committees with meetings of the standing committees. So you'll have House members of the Appropriations and Revenue Committee meeting, and then over here on the other end of the hall, you'll have the Senate Appropriations and Revenue Committee meeting. They won't be meeting together, because they're technically, they're always in session. So they'll be doing their own things. I mean, they still could meet together, uh, but I don't think they will. And I think they'll come to Frankfurt more often, and they'll get paid more often, and their salaries will be bigger, and that will make their pensions bigger uh, at the end of their time in the legislature. And that will incentivize legislators to stay longer.
2: I'm going to talk a, just a, a little bit and then you all can ask questions too because uh, we've already covered a lot about uh, Amendment 2. But before I do that, let me tell you this. Harriet has found out you can go on the, web, is the website Harriet of the Jefferson County Law Library yeah. and find out everything you need to know about the judges.
1: Right, but right. each one has a page where he or she posted what they wanted to tell voters. Right, okay, it's great. Not an endorsement.
2: Yeah, it's not an endorsement, but right. And then Harriet had trouble with this. You could also go on the CJ because the CJ had two forums. District Judges was one forum that we did with the LBA, and the other was uh, Circuit Court and Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And that's also on the CJ. You just had trouble finding it, if I remember correctly. Right. Right? All right. Uh, Let me just talk uh, just briefly about the uh, Amendment 2. It's very short. Uh, Very, very, very short. But John's already mentioned this, and this is really, I think, uh, part of what's a real issue with it is it takes away the court's ability under the Constitution that you could argue to the court this law, For example, the Trigger Law, which is part of a lawsuit right now, or any other law that they might pass about reproductive rights and reproductive health, you can't go to the courts and ask them for any kind of relief under the Kentucky Constitution. And so that's so critical. But let's back up a little bit. Um, And I'm willing for anybody to tell me that I'm wrong about any of these things, but I do not remember that there's ever been a time where there has been a constitutional right initiated by, or elucidated, I guess I should say, by the Supreme Court, okay, because this was a Supreme Court rule, okay, Roe v. Wade, because our Supreme Court interprets the law where they have taken away a right. And again, I can be, anybody thinks that they know of some right that has been taken away. And the one that I thought about today was, because this is brought up, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is that old for the 19th century, said separate but equal was okay. Brown versus Board of Education said, no, that's not right, which gave rights. That, that, that's giving rights to people. So does this mean they can now go back and say, oh, we want to go back to Plessy versus Ferguson? And then that, that sounds pretty extreme, uh, but I'm really obviously concerned about that. So where we are right now is that the trigger law, which was passed purposely to go into effect if Roe v. Wade were uh, overruled, it was challenged, as soon as Roe v. Wade uh, was overruled, it was challenged under our Constitution, the Kentucky Constitution, okay? If, in fact, this Constitution passes, if we don't beat it, The trigger law is in effect and anything else, really, that they might want to pass. Because, again, as John said, we can't go to the courts to challenge any of these things. So, to me, that in and of itself tells us so much. The League's position uh, is based upon where we have stood on women's rights since before the 19th Amendment was uh, passed in 1920. Uh, If women are going to be equal citizens, they have to be equal citizens, not halfway equal uh, citizens, because there's no halfway when you get uh, to that. So one of the things I think is important is, too, is that, and I talked about this when John and I were on this uh, same podium or stage last week, is obviously there are people who have strong religious beliefs about abortion and the trigger law is a perfect example of that because the trigger law says that a fertilized egg is basically a human being. So I don't have any problems with if that is your religious belief but that's not my religious belief. It's not a lot of people's religious belief. It's not a lot of jewish people's re- religious belief or muslims religious belief or all a whole slew of people's religious belief so it's sort of the it gets down to you don't have to do this you know whoever you are you don't have to do this but do you have the right to tell me that i can't uh, have this uh, particular right so you know that's that's where we are and so you're, you're going to get into if we talk about life uh, obviously the response is, well, there's a life there, a baby, a life. Well, my understanding, that for, for, under Jewish law, that life is not a life until birth, okay? So at the same time, this is a fertilized egg, so what does this do? And this is where I think they were not thinking about any of the things after what they've done with the trigger law, and that is, well, what about IVF? okay in vitro fertilization Uh, what happens is a woman's eggs are shall we say harvested then in a laboratory they are fertilized they are fertilized by the father-to-be or can be a donor all of those eggs aren't necessarily used And, and again this is just one example so what happens to them so are we going to freeze those forever who's going to pay for that And then that gets me back to what, as Pat and I have always talked about, it's like, okay, we're all for these babies until they're born. Okay, so what about childcare? What about education? Who's gonna take care of the children that can't be taken care of by the forced birth on 10-year-olds or nine-year-olds, any any of those uh, circumstances? So as we sometimes talk about is the dog has caught the car, and now what's the dog going to do? And so there was not this thinking about uh, any of this. I'm going to recommend that you uh, read uh, something I think is really critical. I found this book. It's called We Descent, And the first part of it is the dissent of uh, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan in the actual Dobbs case, which overruled Roe v. Wade. And it's written so well, they did such a great job. It's easy to read, even though it's a legal treatise, you might say, or a legal decision. And then at the back is the decision of the the majority. One of the things that I find very interesting about the majority is they're talking about, well, women didn't have the right to an abortion back in the, the 17th century or 19th century. And I'm thinking, okay, we didn't have the right to vote in the 19th century. In other words, what's happened is we've been on this journey of getting equal rights and now, okay, sorry gals, we're taking this away. So one of the things that I think you can do um, with people that you know that are not sure or they, uh, whatever, is to have uh, conversations with people, safe places to have conversations so that you can state your point of view, listen to their point of view, but... What, what we know is, is that a majority of Kentuckians do not want this amendment to pass. But of course, what do they have to do? They have to vote. And so that's critical. Um, and actually, I think one of the things we need to make sure is that for you men in the room, this is a men's issue too. This is not just a woman's issue. This is a men's uh, issue. Uh, the colleges, they need to understand what's going on uh, with this and what this means. So I would recommend this to you. I would say to you, you don't have to give up your religious beliefs to be opposed to this amendment because this involves the rights of everybody, not just some small minority that believes a certain way. And the the League, immediately after the uh, Dobbs case came down on the 24th, we were meeting uh, with the National League's convention. And they immediately put together, obviously, that they were against this, and so did the State League and then our global league also uh, made their statements that they were uh, against it. Yes, Barbara.
7: Can I just say a couple words um, about Plan B and Plan C? Sure. I'm very opposed to um, this amendment too, but I do want people to know that abortion has changed today. It may be illegal. In Kentucky, it may be illegal in a lot of places, but people can go on the internet and get abortion pills and have what's called a self-managed abortion at home. They can order the pills through plancpills.org. There's also aidaccess.org. So women have more choices, actually, today. Cheaper, $110 to get an abortion. Jenny? Unfortunately, the Kentucky Legislature banned uh, abort, abortion pills by
1: mail this last well, session. no
7: one's going <laughs> to you know. In Illinois, my parents is paying for a truck to go around and dispense birth control, um, Plan C. There's also, you know, Plan B. It's really important for all women who can get pregnant to have in their home plan B, the morning after pill, in their closet, not just a prescription, not, oh gosh, you know, how do I get it, you can't get it over the counter. So think plan C, think plan B. Talk Can I about,
1: ask a quick
2: question?
7: Sure. What's the enforcement arm of that legislation?
1: What was that? Um, it is through the Cabinet of Health and Family Services.
2: What I, I meant to say, and I forgot, is in the trigger law, there's no exception for rape. No exception for incest. There is an exception for the health of the mother, but it's a really, really broad sort of statement. And the question is, and I've, I've talked to many doctors about this, do they have to wait till the mother is dying, almost dying, ready to die, before they can do anything? Uh, that, those are the kinds of things that are obviously really an issue. And then for the doctors performing an abortion, under the law, the, the penalty can be a felony. Which is one to five years in uh, the prison. Okay, now what we have not passed, and again, is the vigilante aspect, which they have in Texas. The vi- vigilante aspect is if I am against abortion and I find out that you are going to get one, then I can go after you. So we don't have that yet.
3: And you can go after the person
1: who drives.
2: Yes, exactly. Right. Brenda, question. One of the issues is the very extreme people who are against abortion. And I'm talking about the extreme, and not everybody is that. The extreme is they want to go after contraception. And there's no doubt in my mind they want to go after um, marriage equality. In other words, they want a theocracy in the United States. Transgender rights, the whole nine yards. Somebody else had something? Yes.
1: I'm particularly concerned about what happens to people undergoing miscarriages. You know, we all have had friends who've had not maybe one or more than one miscarriage, and uh, what's happening now is that their miscarriages are being called into question. Right,
2: and the um, challenge to the, the, the trigger law is on hold right now. This Jefferson Circuit judge, of course, entered an injunction Uh, But uh, Cameron and the AG's office took that up and a court of appeals judge, so see court of appeals judges do affect your lives, a court of appeals judge did away with that injunction and then they fast-tracked it to the Supreme Court of Kentucky, again an issue, but it's not going to be heard until after they see whether the amendment passes. And of course, what we know is that the Supreme Court, the makeup of it could change. Uh, which is a whole nother ballgame, too. A lot of questions.
1: If anything you can think of that is under this broader right that was eliminated with Dobbs is a right that we, that we have relied upon and, and have. Right.
2: To. Can the state just do anything? What if the state of Kentucky decides that they're going to discriminate against women and our black people or transgender people? So does the federal Constitution not mean anything anymore? Whatever's
1: not specifically given Mm -hmm. in the Constitution is what they've eliminated.
2: Right. So how many people in this room can remember when they couldn't get a credit card in their own name? It had to be in their spouse's name. In November, November the 21st, Professor Enid Trucios Haynes is going to come and talk about all of these amendment issues and voting issues and rights issues. And part of why I decided to have her come is it doesn't matter that the election's over. There's an election next year, okay? We know about all the issues involving voting and the problems, and so we've got to stay on our toes about voting and everything that's related to voting. So I'm looking forward to her. Uh, Third Monday is the 21st, so plan on coming back.
0: That was Dee Pregliasco, president of the Louisville League of Women Voters, who spoke recently on Amendment 2. She was preceded by John Shop, guest presenter at the League, who spoke on Amendment 1. Both of these amendments will be appearing on your ballot this November. You can hear this and other election-related programs by going to forwardradio.org, clicking on Programs, and selecting Election Connection. Thank you for listening to Election Connect.